Hello, my name is Andy. And hello, my name is Richard. And this is Strange Stuff Murdery Bits. turned into Mark. Well, that's my job this morning, is it not? Start ringing while I'm coming up the stairs with me mug of tea. Oh, wow. <laughs> Run! For those of you who are more observant this morning, you'll notice that Mark is still not here. Unfortunately, he's been detained in the UK due to unpleasant things, which uh, we wish him all the best for, and hope to see him back here soon. Yeah, indeed. So how are you? I see um, you're not the man in black today, you're the man in white disco. Yeah, I'm sort of bouncing about the place at the moment. I'm doing some... I don't want to call it spring cleaning because we're in the middle of an Arctic winter. Yep. <laughs> Actually, we have had a bit of a heat wave this week. I'm on... I need to put my glasses on because I don't believe this. I'm plus four degrees. Bloody hell. Yeah, no, it, it's this week here has got the same. It was 12, 13 degrees, 14 degrees the last couple of days. That's cool. Oh, it's yeah. spot the cat's bum time. She's, she's presenting. <laughs> Are you coming on then? Come on in. She's looking at me like I'm the one with no fucking morals. It's, it's the one thing with cats. As I said, I've two for 17 years. And you never have a problem. Come sit on my lap. But it's the amount of time sometimes that it takes for them to simply just get on your lap and make themselves comfortable. Yeah, it's a 20-minute job. There you go. Back in the early days when I had my two, I didn't have a, I had a, my grandparents' old TV. They bought it in 1973. They didn't have a remote. Yeah. And there'd be days where the cat would take so long to make herself comfortable but by the time she finished, the program had ended and I'd have to get up and go and change the channel. We have that, don't we? She always picks a time when I'm just about to leave the computer. Yeah. Before she gets on and makes herself comfortable. Yeah, well, she's got it right this morning then. She's got an hour. Well, kind of. I'm not fully stopped here. <laughs> no, oh dear. Poor Satan. So other than unseasonably warm, how's your week been then? Um, quite good. I've been training one of our newcomers, a lovely young lady called Ivana. Nice. I won't ask her what you've been training her in because I wouldn't understand even if you told me. Teaching her how to use one of the, well, well both of the grinding machines. You're fading in and out again. Oh, sorry. It's because I'm. I think it's. I hope it's because I'm just moving my head. Let me just check my settings. I don't want to go through all this nonsense again. Of course, I can't check my settings. Am I fading in and out badly? No, you're all right now. It's really annoying when I can't do anything while we're recording. I think it's a. It's a case of Towns Van Zandt here. I don't know if you're familiar with Towns Van Zandt. <clears throat> he yeah. was like a. Cu- country singer songwriter in his field one of the most famous ever wrote mostly kind of depressing 
songs, but you know, it's country. But he was very good at what he did. And um, we did, it turned out his last ever gig at the borderline just for Christmas back in the 90s. And um, alcoholism, he was a severe alcoholic. And he was so addled by it that his manager told me to tell him that rather than tell him we didn't have any Stolich Naya vodka, which is the only thing he, he drank, I was told to tell him that we didn't have any Coca-Cola because he wouldn't drink it without Coca-Cola. And I said, but surely no Stolly is more believable than no Coca-Cola. And his manager said, no, he cannot fathom the idea that there's a bar in the world that does not have Stolich oh. Naya. You will believe that you've run out of Coke before he believes that you've run out of Stolly. Satan just fucking headbutt the bottom of my <laughs> mug. I saw that. Built hot tea all down my tits. <laughs> anyway, do his sound check. This guy's sitting there and he's too far from the mic. Right. And Mike, Mike our old mate Mike, Mike, the Mikey, he um, said to him, he said, Towns, he said, can you move forward a bit? He said, and, and, you know, speak and sing more into the microphone. And this guy just looked up at me. He went, nice, it's all right. Just pour some tequila on it. Okay. <laughs> and I was up. That was that. Mike was like, yeah, okay, whatever, mate. I don't have a reply to that. I have no response. I don't know what to say now. Well, I've just tried doing tea on mine. It didn't help. No, I did this thing in the crowbar battle of the DJs. Got two two decks in and got a couple of guys to play. And um, it lasted an hour before one of them spilt a very large Jack and Coke all over their deck and blew it up. As long as it was their deck and not yours. No, I'd hide it from bloody John Henry's. Cost me a fortune. People don't understand the value of electronics. No, no, indeed. Although I'm going to say my daughter does. We were watching a, one of the, the Terminator 4 last night. And um, fair dues to her, she's 10. So one of them gives the other one a radio and says, here you go, you can get in touch with me with this. And he puts it in his pocket and then jumps into the water. She just looked at me and she went, well, his radio's knackered then, isn't it, Daddy? <laughs> Does she actually say knackered? Is she that posh? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, she's almost 11 and wanted to say fucked. Yeah. But not and he's quite used to me using the F word. And I have explained to her that it's not a swear word. It's just a, a delightful word in the English language that allows you to express yourself in so many ways. But she hasn't quite got to the point where she's prepared to use it in front of me yet, which is a bit odd. My daughter has no such qualms. No, she's slightly older. Not in primary school, not getting told off for swearing in the playground. In fact, she, she works in bars, so swearing is positively encouraged. Well, yeah. So anything <laughs> happening in the news this week? Um, I've been watching the news, but I don't think there'll be much happening. Obviously, the whole post office thing, which I mean... <laughs> but, I mean, that's been ongoing for years. And yes, and it, it, it sort of... I mean, how did it take Horizon documentary to finally get people to sort this shit out? I mean, it's it's been proved that the computer system that the post office installed to run their sub-post offices was at fault, and it was falsely saying that there was money missing from sub-post offices, and people went to prison, people committed suicide, and uh, it was something like 400 people got sacked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute outrage. It's incredibly obvious that something was going on and everybody was just saying, nope, 
we believe there's nothing wrong with the computer system. These people are all thieves. Yeah, no, it, it, it's gobsmacking um, that the post office just persisted in this belief that people were stealing. I mean, some of it was obviously hiding the fact that they paid a fortune for this computer system that they knew didn't work. And some bloke's ego decided that his reputation was more important than the than, um, you know, 400 or 500 odd sub-postmasters. It's the old cover my ass and let everybody else burn syndrome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, whoever this bloke is, I don't know who's responsible. The, the head of the post office has just been fired, but he's only been there for a year, so he's clearly not it's responsible for this originally. It's got nothing to do with him. Again, it's cover your own ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, let's throw a couple of... But whoever this body. is needs to be properly tarred and feathered. I think they should bring back tarring and feathering for people like this. People who do these things. It's a suitable punishment. I imagine it's bloody painful. Oh, there's no infrastructure outside London for the rest of England anymore anyway when it comes to post offices. Oh, no. To lose 500 sub-post offices yeah. is a real oh. big blow. Watching an interview, one chap, he's now, he's 72. Um, he got caught up in all of this. I don't know why. He pleaded guilty and was offered the deal that he wouldn't go to prison as long as he paid back the money. That's why he pleaded guilty. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's terrified of going to prison. And um, so he had to borrow the money from his mother. Now, he's 72 and he lives with his 89-year-old mother, has done for the last 10 years or so because he has no money of his own. And um, that man is due an, <laughs> stupid amounts of money in compensation. Yeah. Because, you know... Millions. Millions, yes. It, it, it's just, you know, for a grown man to have to do that, to have to live with his mother at that age is just is diabolical. I see that the uh, eco-geniuses are helping save the world by throwing soup over the Mona Lisa. Oh, have they? Yeah, in a bid in a bid to change climate, no less. I can see how that would work. Yeah, absolutely. I fucking hate these morons. I fucking it, 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 hate it, them. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not helping anybody to achieve anything, is it? Oh, that's such a lovely view. Yeah, sorry, Satan is really... Letting herself go to the dogs. <laughs> I mean, it won't have harmed the Mona Lisa, though. The Mona Lisa's behind a load of bleeding glass and bulletproof screens and all sorts. I know, but do these fucking morons think they're being heroes? Do they think anyone's going to go, hell yeah? Well, yeah. somebody, about six of them, down the pub, clearly. But I, beyond that, not a lot. I can. I, I bet they've got double-barreled surnames as well. Probably. Yeah, no, that seems a pointless act. I mean, there's, you know, many an act of vandalism that they could have uh, could have done. But um, the fuck does the Mona Lisa know or care? Do you know what? If you really want to save the world by change or stopping climate change, go to China and blow up some coal-fired power stations. I went, took my daughter to one of these. Remember, the kids were striking on Fridays. Nope. Uh, Back to COVID two or three years ago. Anyway, the kids were striking. They refused me to go to school on Fridays. They weren't allowed in school, were they? No, it wasn't during COVID, but it was. My chronological recollection of the last few years is a bit vague. Okay. For a while, for about six months or so, kids over here were, a lot of them would not go to school on Fridays and going on marches. 
So I took my daughter one day, who stood there surrounded by all these kids. Two of them were talking and bemoaning the fact that her and her friends had all driven down and couldn't find anywhere to park that day. Oh, bless. You know, but to a, a, to a Save the Planet rally. In a town where you can walk from one side to the other in about 50 minutes, I know I've done it. So, yeah. um, no, this is it. You know, you, you see the students around here, six to a house, five, six cars to a house. Every student, there's a car these days. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. You just came back. It was reconnecting. Oh, I could hear you. It sounded like you were doing about a pound of Colombian. Uh, yes. No, I, I thought that as you'd be editing that bit out, I would take the opportunity to... Uh... I have to say, you're very sniffy this morning. Uh, it sounds I am, like, yeah. It sounds like you're doing a lot of coke. <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately, there's absolutely nothing to do with the coke. And the fact that I'm sat in the coldest corner of the bleeding house. Well, you need to wear more hoodie. No, it's it's the weather. The temperature's up and down, up and down. So, you know, my nose doesn't know what it wants to do or where it wants to go. I have to say, I do get a bit sniffy when the temperature changes, but it changes every day here. So I've had a 20-year cold. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that makes a change from Soho flu. Yeah, but I prefer the Soho flu. Well, absolutely. You earn that Infinitely trip. more fun. <laughs> anyway, let's get to business. I was... Prompted on this subject by uh, a guy called Eric at work, who keeps giving me subjects which I keep turning my nose up at because I don't think he understands the concept of my podcast. <laughs> Does he listen? No. No. Well, that would probably have something to do with it then. He, he generally suggests subjects based on YouTube videos that he likes. So, yeah. Okay. And, and he he and I have very different idea of what my strange stuff entails. <laughs> well, anyway. I think if you did, a, you did a poll, you'd find that pretty much everybody has a different idea of what is constitutes strange. Yeah, I guess. But we were, we were sitting having our uh, tea break, and he mentioned something about the English cannibalism period, and I and I went. Okay, stop right there. <laughs> but I ended up having to kind of apologise to him. Okay. And this stems from as early as the 1100s, in fact. <laughs> it wasn't entirely cannibalism, but it kind of is. But in 15th century Europe, for instance, the remedy for a headache or a stomach problem or even cancer, even though they didn't really know what to call cancer in those days, would sometimes come with a side dish of Egyptian mummy. Ah. Now, for centuries, apparently, embalmed bodies were prized across the continent, not just for their historical value, but also for their purported medical benefits. And this is the surprising reason that people once craved and ate mummies. The practice of consuming parts of ancient mummies and later embalmed corpses of all kinds began as i said in the 11th century and what started it was probably a series of mistranslations and misunderstandings the gory story hinges on one word mummia and it was prized for its healing qualities a mummia was a substance found on a single persian mountainside where it seeped from black rock asphalt and it was named after the local word for wax, mum. 
<laughs> it could be mum, but I'm going with mum. So shoot me. The substance was used for a variety of medical purposes and it gained a reputation in the Arabic word as expensive, precious and very effective. But when Western Europeans began encountering the Islamic world and translating its texts, a single mistranslation led to widespread confusion about the meaning of mummia. Some blithering plonker called Wilkinson Smythe got it wrong. Uh, well, actually, his name was Damonfelt. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> A variety of 11th and 12th century translations incorrectly identified mummia as a substance exuded from preserved bodies in Egyptian tombs. Now, part of the confusion came from the word mummia's similarity to the word mummy, and also the fact that some ancient Egyptian mummies were embalmed using asphalt. Scientists now know that only some mummies were made with that process. But Western Europeans, fascinated by the ancient finds in Egypt, ran with the concept. A mummia became associated with embalmed bodies instead of precious asphalt from a Persian mountain. When you say asphalt, are you talking about the stuff on the roads? Kind of. I'm guessing it's basically the same construction. Well, in the black oozing stuff, yeah, it's tar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because what they put on the road isn't all asphalt. Obviously, no. there's lots of rock and shit like that mixed in it. But um, that remains. black bubbly oozy stuff that makes the smell. They're talking about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, can, you can see how instantly you smell that and think, oh, that'll cure every ill in known to man. The mistranslation and the medical misunderstandings now combined with another long-standing and wrong belief that the human body contains properties that can heal other humans. Okay. Because for generations, humans have practised what is now known as medical cannibalism, but I will call general practition. Because <laughs> the fucking doctors are no wiser today than they nope. were 1,100 years ago. They're still basically back in the Stone Age. I hate modern doctors with a passion because they all pretend they're one step above the rest of humanity and they are a bunch of know-nothing witches. Absolutely. I totally agree. My experiences of doctors in the last few years has led me to believe that, oh, God... That they all hate people. If this is the best we can do, let's just stop practicing medicine because nine times out of ten, if you are referred to a doctor or a hospital, you're going to come out worse than you went in. Yep. I'm afraid we are in a really, really bad way in our medical practice. Well, it's still, you know, it's still rooted in, I mean, the problem with modern medicine is that it came about through. A bunch of quacks who served kings and queens because they were the only ones who could afford doctors. I mean, 150 years ago, we were still bloodletting. Well, we were still prescribing cocaine for having ghosts in the blood. Yes. And women who were feeling faint generally had the vapours. Oh, God, yeah, no, the, the, the ignorance is incredible. Um, and the and then ignorance... Since then, it's just been pharmaceuticals. The ignorance is continued to this very day, and that's what really pisses me off. We have one or two major advances in medical science. Um, yeah, we've had some technological breakthroughs. 
we've had some we may have cured or at least helped cure some of the old viruses that wiped out millions of people in the past but everyday general practice go back to the drawing board you're fucking rubbish yep something that baffles me so seven years they spent learning to be a doctor and you're telling me that somewhere in those seven years they couldn't find an hour for a lecture on how to talk to people you know, it's, it's this superiority complex. They think that because they are doctor, they are above the rest of the human race. Let me bring you down to earth, chum. You're an idiot. Oh, I only ever go to the, see the doctor if I really, really have to. Oh, God, yeah. And I refuse any medicine unless, I mean, I, am, I do take blood thinning tablets now, but I came off them after I'd been fine for a couple of years, because I would rather not. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got another blood clot, I went back on them. And now I guess I have to stay on them. But I mean, I'm, I'm having, I've just had x-rays on my lungs for a, a, a perceived problem. And they're, they're using the word asthma. I don't yeah. have asthma. Asthma is like, it, it's like um, arthritis. It's, uh, it's, one of their go-to it's like i have no idea what's wrong with you so i'll just tell you you've got asthma so that you can fuck off out of my office because you're a pleb and i don't have time for you but i don't have asthma i have no symptoms so we're waiting for the results of these x-rays and if they tell me that i've got asthma and here's a prescription for my inhalers i'm going to tell them to fuck right off yeah just do not give me medicine for shit i haven't got they spent my entire childhood trying to give me asthma Oh. They're fucking obsessed with it. It drives me insane. And then they wonder, you know, I mean, London's got one of the highest rates of asthma in children in the world. No, it and hasn't. It's got <clears> the <throat> highest fucking pollution in Europe, that's all. But I hadn't really thought about it until I had a child of my own. And then I noticed that every pram and buggy in London, well, everywhere, but in London, do the exact same height as it's, bus exhausts. Yeah. So those children don't breathe oxygen for the first three years of their lives. Yeah. All they're breathing is exhaust fumes, carbon monoxide. So it's no wonder that they've got asthma. But it's not asthma, is it? It no, is, you know, it's poison. Fucking, yeah. Well, but clearly the solution here is to open a club in Soho that provides powdered mummies. And yes. everybody can come and drink large quantities of alcohol, snort powdered mummies and live forever. So, I mean, why, why did people think that cannibalism was good for the health? Some Burke told them, and people are always happy to believe a Burke. Well, it was a belief that ground up and tinctured, tinctured, of course, because this is where your medical bamboozlement comes in. Well, what you mean, sprinkled in with your wine and your laudanum? Yes. Uh, human remains could cure anything from bubonic plague, no less, money up front, to a headache. And then, also by the macabre idea that Victorian people had about after dinner entertainment, which was faith that mummies could cure illness, drove people for centuries to ingest things that tasted disgusting. Mummia, this product created from mummified bodies, was a medicinal substance consumed for centuries by the rich and the poor, and it was available in apothecary shops and created from the remains of mummies bought from Egyptian tombs back to Europe. Now, in a world without any antibiotics, I hate to use the word physicians. I would love to use charlatans or con men. But physicians prescribed ground up skulls, bones and flesh to treat illnesses 
from headaches to reducing swelling or, as I said, curing the plague. Not everyone, though, was convinced, surprisingly. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that. Guy de la Fontaine, a royal doctor, doubted that mummia was a useful medicine. And he also commented on the forged mummies that were made from dead peasants. (laughs) (laughs) Andy Ink. (laughs) I've got an idea. (laughs) These Muppets are buying mummies. Yes. There you go. That's um, that's, that's Hannah's deposit on a mortgage and my daughter's um, college fund. We just simply sell our bodies to medicine. To be ground up and snorted by strange rich people. Or use other people's bodies. I was thinking more of what I could do with mine afterwards, you know, still be constructive, still be a, a meaningful member of society. This guy, Guy de, de La Fontaine, he was actually referring to the peasants that were killed, or that I, I will say that died in Alexandria in 1564 because they used to plant decoy mummies for just such a reason as this, to stop grave robbers taking away the pharaoh's remains. So they just mummified poor people and left them scattered around for... I I would say that knowing the way the ancient Egyptians worked, they were probably the very same people who built the pyramids. And when the pyramid was complete, their work was actually at an end, so they had no further use for them. Um, yes, no, that's, that's not, obviously a lot of people died while they were building the, the, the pyramids because it took an awful long time. But uh, no, when they finished, they went back to their lives, the ones that were still alive. Uh, a lot of them were built by slave labour. Uh, there's, there's a lot of doubt on that these days. A lot of doubt. Oh, there's rewriting history going on, is there? No, it's not <laughs> rewriting history. It's the realisation that um, people actually gave um, periods of their, their year when they weren't busy farming to building the pyramids out of worship for the god pharaoh. And it uh, was done voluntarily. Uh, I can see that that would certainly account for a percentage. I can't see that the amount of people required would be provided by farmers in a land of desert. Yeah. The, the, the archaeology suggests now that most of them were there willingly. I mean, you know, obviously you had the full-time ones. You had stonemasons who were stonemasons. That's yeah, what they but did. It's, it's so the people who lug the stones are <laughs> the ones I'm talking about. Yeah, but now it, it, it looks like, I mean, it, you know, it probably were slaves because slaves existed. Slavery was a fact in those days. But this idea that they enslave whole nations to do this is, is completely wrong. They have found the villages where these people lived, and clearly their their lifestyle was good. They were well fed. They were given lots of meat, lots of beer, paid in beer, um, and that didn't change up until the the, the age of the navvies and the canals in this country, but they were also paid in meat and beer. And why did it change? I mean, that was the ideal currency. Absolutely, yes, I know, bloody money. Eat and drink for what you do for work, and then steal what you want for pleasure. <laughs> There's certainly one philosophy on life. But the forgeries that we're talking about, the fake mummies, they do illustrate an important point. There was a constant demand for dead flesh to be used for medicine, and the supply of real Egyptian mummies obviously could not meet this. Now, apothecaries and herbalists were still 
dispensing mummy medicines well into the 18th century. And not all doctors thought dry old mummies made the best medicine. Some doctors believed, instead, that fresh meat and blood had a vitality that the long dead lacked. They got a certain point. They have, but again, they're still barking up the complete wrong forest. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, at least fresh meat's got calories in it. (laughs) Yes, but it could be Cousin Eddie. Well, it could be. But then maybe everybody would cheer and have an Eat Cousin Eddie party. Oh, the claim that fresh was best even convinced some of the noblest of our nobles. They're thick as shit. They're, They're the thickest fuckers in the country. King Charles II. Here we go, king thick as shit. And this is only one King Charles before our current, I may remind you. Yes, but there was a bit of a gap. (laughs) There was. Well, he took medication made from human skulls after suffering a seizure. I was wondering about this. So if you've got a headache, you snort the powdered skull. If you've got problems with your liver, do you then eat bits of mummified liver? Is that how it works? I mean, I've had liver and onions on many occasions, calves liver and onions with bacon. One of my favourite dishes, in fact. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I can honestly say I've never had a liver problem. Well, there we go then. Clearly it works. So I'm I'm giving that 10 out of 10. Yeah, absolutely. And that is every bit as medically valid as anything you'll hear from a doctor. Anyway, you were saying. Yes, I was. So King Charles II took medication made from human skulls after suffering a seizure. And as recently as 1909, physicians commonly used human skulls to treat neurological conditions. So... Brain surgeons, honestly, I've never. Uh, it it really makes me sad when I read some of this stuff, and then I look at the way that these people expect to be treated and revered and venerated today. Well, yeah, and then you know what gets me as well is it, I saw something on the news recently about some groundbreaking surgery using technology. And I think it was on the brain. And it was remarkable. And it saved this man's life. But, but it the was cost technology. to save this one man's life, while we're simply ignoring all the children that are dying every moment of every day. It, yes, you know, I, I find that with the medical, medical world um, quite ludicrous. It's like, oh, yeah, you saved one person. Whoopee. Yeah, I get it. Well, for the royal and social elite, eating mummies seemed royally appropriate. As doctors claimed Mummia was made from pharaohs, it was royalty eating royalty, which I kind of agree with. So they, did they dig up Lizzie? Not yet. Give her a chance. Not this one, the first one. <laughs> no, I mean, pharaohs were the kings of Egypt, weren't they? Yeah, no, but I just suddenly had a vision of King Charles II sending people out to raid the tombs of his ancestors. I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't put anything past our recent and not-so-recent kings and queens. But anyway, let's move on to the Victorians. But first... And now, a word from our sponsors. So by the 19th century, now we're talking almost our lifetime, people were no longer consuming mummies to cure illness, but Victorians were now hosting what they called unwrapping parties. (laughs) Oh, God. It's amazing the ideas we can come up with before we got TV and the internet. 
Yes, the, the, the human ability to entertain itself is remarkable. And the nonsense we will do just to keep ourselves busy is remarkable. Well, unless you're in any doubt, this is where Egyptian corpses would be unwrapped for entertainment at private parties. Napoleon's first expedition into Egypt in 1798 piqued European curiosity and allowed 19th century travellers to Egypt to bring whole mummies back to Europe, brought off the streets in Egypt. Yep. And I'm going to send you a little picture of a street vendor. Is this a chap with a coat with a load of... Oh, there he is, yes, selling mummies. Isn't that wonderful? Get your mummies. Mummies here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Victorians held private parties dedicated to unwrapping the remains of ancient Egyptian mummies. And early unwrapping events had at least a veneer of medical respectability. For example, in 1834, the surgeon Thomas Pettigrew, charlatan, unwrapped a mummy. The, I mean... Going back to these charlatans, right? In 1834, a surgeon, right, a, a royal surgeon, would, if you had a broken leg, he would chop it off. He would actually chop it off rather than, I mean, where was the critical thinking? How hard is it to say, look, the leg's broken, but what would happen if I put it in a straight line and taped it all back together? How long did it take someone to think that up? Well, the sad thing is, it's that it was forgotten. I mean, you, you, you read um, the medical, well, stuff by medical people from the Roman times, and they were very good at splinting, at fixing broken bones, at resetting, you know, dislocated shit. The Romans knew how to do all of this. They treated stuff with honey and vinegar. They, you know, the success rate of healing wounded legionnaires was phenomenal for the time. And then along with cement and everything else, as soon as the Romans left, we all forgot it yeah. and went back to barbaric nonsense again. And crapping out the window into the street. Yes. Well, but you anyway, do shout guardy lose, so that's all right. Yeah. Well, anyway, this Thomas Pettigrew charlatan unwrapped a mummy at the Royal College of Surgeons, otherwise known as Clown School. Yeah. <laughs> in, in his time, <laughs> autopsies and operations took place in public. This was another way of raising money, of course, because they took place in public at a cost. It was theatre. Oh, yeah, of course. This was entertainment. This was theatre. This was... Which I, you know, I, I mean, it, it already, I, you know, in, in my head, you and I, Victorian gentlemen, are running a club in Soho yeah, where you I, get to unwrap mummies and snort mummies while drinking laudanum. I'm not knocking it because I would have done exactly <laughs> the same thing. If there's a buck to be made out of it, let's make it. Oh, fuck yeah. Unwrapping was just basically another public medical event. But soon... Even the pretense of medical research was lost because mummies were no longer medicinal, but they were quite thrilling. So a dinner host who could entertain an audience while unwrapping was rich enough to own an actual mummy. So the thrill of seeing dried flesh and bones appearing as bandages came off meant that people flocked to these unwrappings. Whether it was in a private house or the theatre, there was always strong drink and that meant that audiences were loud and appreciative. Now, mummy unwrapping parties only ended as the 20th century began. So we're talking the year 1900s. I know, it's, it's insane, isn't it? 
and this is this is how far we've come as a society. The macabre thrills suddenly seemed in bad taste, and the inevitable destruction of archaeological remains suddenly seemed regrettable. And then came the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. And that fueled a craze that shaped Art Deco design in everything from motifs of doors in the Chrysler building to the shape of clocks designed by Cartier, one of my favourite designers, by the way. The sudden death in 1923 of Lord Carnarvon, who sponsored the Tutankhamun expedition, sorry, was from natural causes, but it was attributed to a brand new superstition, the mummy's curse. And this kind of put people off attending the unwrapping parties. (laughs) Funny that. I mean, forget the fact that you're a a cannibal. It's it's okay to go and eat a 2,000-year-old dead body and giggle while you're sniffing the remains of their innards. But if there's a chance of some witch's curse, (laughs) I think I'll swerve that one. Honestly, the, the mentality... As recently as 2016, in fact, Egyptologist John J. Johnson hosted the first public unwrapping of a mummy since 1908. Oh, okay. Now, this was part art, part science and part show. Yeah. And what he did was he created a really fully immersive recreation of what it was like to be present at a Victorian unwrapping. It was as tasteless as fuck. I can imagine. Of course with, it is. With everything from the bangles, walk like an Egyptian playing. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> to the plying of the audience with straight gin. <laughs> the mummy itself was only an actor wrapped in bandages. Right. But the event was a heady sensory mix. And the fact that it took place at St. Bart's Hospital in London was a modern reminder that mummies cross many realms of experience from the medical to the macabre. And even today, the black market of antiquity smuggling, which includes mummies still, is worth about $3 billion US. I bet you there's loads of super rich people who are still snorting mummies. I can guarantee it. Yeah. This came up in some book I was reading with my daughter. And um, they... Use so many mummies. I mean, the world of archaeology is just beside itself. The amount of evidence, the amount of mummies that the Victorians got through. Yeah. And when they ran out of humans, they started snorting cats instead because Egyptians like to mummify cats. I would, I would hang them. For, they could snort yeah, as but many they pharaohs as they want, but you start snorting cats, me and you've got a problem. Yeah, no, they did. And as a result, there's a lot less cat mummies in the world now as well. I don't think anyone should be mummified. I, I, as a, I understand their beliefs and I understand why they did it, but... Yeah, but then have you, have you heard about these... Um, I think they're mostly Buddhist. Um, a couple of Japanese and Tibetans. Well, they choose to become mummies, these these saintly men. There's um, little tombs, well, called tomb shrines up in the Himalayas. But these, these guys, they go through, it's a process. So when they decide the time is right, they only eat certain foods and then they gradually stop eating, stop drinking. The certain foods are to get rid of certain bacteria in the body that will rot the body. 
And they eventually get to a state where they're weakened by malnutrition and dehydration, and they go into a sort of zen contemplation, and then they just sit there cross-legged until they die. We call it a coma today. Yes, and then their bodies are left there to mummify naturally in the dry air that you get up in the mountains, and you can go and visit these things. Why would you? I don't understand the mind of religious ascetics. It's beyond me why anybody would want to do that kind of shit in the name of any kind of religion. It seems absolutely ridiculous, but I I guess it makes some kind of sense to them. We've spent enough time denigrating religions and medical science on this program. Over the over the last few years, well, it's easily done, isn't it's, it? Yeah, but it's a never-ending subject. It's it's endlessly fascinating what people choose to put their faith into, and how, if you look at it from an outsider's point of view, how absolutely ridiculous the whole thing is. Yeah, we take the Ouija board. I mean, the Ouija board was invented as a parlor game. It was. Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure what kind of game you play with it, but it was a parlor game, and it was only until the First World War. Um, nobody took it seriously. For, you know, I think it had been around for about 20-odd years. And then, of course, come the First World War, everybody wanted to talk to their dead soldiers' sons, and Ouija boards were given credence, and yeah. it became a massive thing. And you, you, thank you to the Criminal Society who made that happen, because that was basically the invention of the con man known as the medium. Yep. <laughs> I, I had an aunt who believed in all of that shit. This is back in the 70s. My husband died suddenly, and for the next 20 years, she used to go once a week to a medium. There was two schools of thought in the family, those who were outraged by it and the fact that they felt she was just wasting her money and being conned. And then there were those who were like, well, you know, if it gives her some kind of peace of mind and stops her being in my house driving me insane, and then let her. But, I mean, it's a very unhealthy way to spend the next 20 years of your life talking to Well, it is. But then it has to be said, for those 20 years, her doctor was busy giving her Mogadon, Purple Hearts, and every other sort of barbiturate. I mean, her medicine cabinet. Jesus, you should have seen it. Oh, full of mummy's little helpers. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she spent 20 years off her tits going to mediums. I mean, I could do the off me tits bit. Yeah. Mediums. Come on. No, I don't know. But then it was funny. You see, there was one of her sisters who stopped talking to her, not because of the drugs or the money she was spending at the mediums, but because she was deeply Christian and felt that this was blasphemy. But Jesus allegedly rose from the dead. So if you had spoken to Jesus during those few days that he had risen from the dead before he vanished forever, wouldn't that also be blasphemous? You've just opened a whole new school of debate within the, within the Vatican now, haven't you? <laughs> I, I really, really have no idea whether that would be... To speak to Jesus after he's died, but before he's ascended to heaven. No, I don't see that that's blasphemy. Or would that just be another way of praying? <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, I imagine most of the comments would have been, fucking hell, I thought you were dead. Because I don't think anybody worshipped Jesus during Jesus' time, did they? He wasn't seen as... Oh, uh, yeah, he was, though. He had his disciples and he had hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah, but, you know, disciples are easy. I mean, you find me any world-class boxer who doesn't have at least 12 disciples following him around. True, but they're in it for the money. 
Well, well, Peter and Paul and that lot weren't in it for the prestige and the women it pulled. Get out of here. Yeah, I mean, if you look closely at the painting of The Last Supper, there's definitely a chick in there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I go with that. I go with the, the um, what was her name? Mary, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene thing. Yeah. And I, also, I like to think that there was women involved because otherwise it's very suspect. <laughs> Yeah, no, there was, uh, you know, there was 12 uh, men in dresses attending a dinner party. Yeah, well, it, it, there is that. Yes. Um, you know, I've, I've always wondered why the Vatican was so anti Mary Magdalene, anti the idea that Jesus had a girlfriend and was straight. Yeah. Because the alternative well, is that he spent all his time with boys or men. Well, look at the way the Catholic Church has operated over the years since. It seems that the priests do prefer boys and men. It would be, yes, evidently that is the preferred version of things, yes. It's a, it's a very strange organisation. And it always amazes me, you know, conspiracy theorists, that they go and invent organisations, lizard, baby-eating lizards and all of that, when, you know, you want conspiracy, the Vatican. Yeah. The amount of stuff they've hidden, they've lied about, manipulated, their involvement with Hitler... The, you know, and, and the involvement with politics all the way through the existence of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, you need look no further than a real world power manipulating organization of wrongness. Well, the Pope used to be the most powerful figure in the world and possibly still is. Absolutely. Well, I, I don't think they quite got the clout they used to have. They don't they don't topple governments in the same way anymore. But no, um, it's down to McDonald's these days. Yes. Have you, um, there's a book, I think it's called The Diaries of a Gnostic Dwarf. I'll send you a link. It's a book well worth reading. It's about this dwarf whose primary job, it's based a lot on fact. His primary job was to read to Pope Leo X. But he ended up, obviously, you know, when, you, when you're that close to a pope, you get an awful lot of power. And um, it's, it's a brilliant book because it really, really let you see what goes on in the Vatican. Well, I'll I mean, send you a link. You should read it. It's delightful. As we know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Oh, especially um, when that power is given to you by God. Yes. You know, I defy anybody, anybody to not let that go to their heads. If you're told, well, you know, God has chosen you, you are the most powerful human by God's decree, then it's very hard to remain humble. You know, as Pope, that you're a fucking fraud because God hasn't spoken to you and God doesn't speak to you. So you know that you're a con man. And most of those popes are fully aware of it. Quite many of them didn't believe in God in the first place. No, it, was, it, it wasn't set up as a religion. It was set up as a fucking gang organisation. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, 10 out of 10 for them, they've been very, very successful. They are the richest fuckers on the planet. Which is why it appalled me when I stood outside St. Mark's Square um, late last year and saw all the homeless people. I hope you didn't buy yourself a coffee in St. Mark's Square because that would have cost you about £30 by now. God, God no. Absolutely not. No, we just looked at the very, very long queue and thought, bugger that. Oh. But no, to see, you know... The Vatican and all its wealth and then to see all the beggars outside of it was just appalling because they wouldn't even notice the money it would take to, to you know, eradicate homelessness in Rome. It, they wouldn't even notice. It would be small change to them. Yeah, but where's the fun in that? I mean, they they 
Well, the fun in that is to do what Christ told you to do and look after poor people who are less well-off than you are. This is an organisation that made Mother Teresa a saint. She was one of the most evil, vindictive bitches ever to walk the face of this planet. Yeah, she turned out to be a right nasty. But then it doesn't surprise me that she turned out to be a right nasty cow. I mean, I knew an awful lot of women of her generation, and they were mostly horrible, nasty cows. It has to be said, they all seem to have an axe to grind. Um, and, you know, kind of understandably the way women had been treated up until that point. But, um, yeah, no, she, she was on a power trip. She was doing it all for her own purpose because you can't be a saint. If you get rid of all the sick people, you can't be, you know, Mother Teresa anymore, can you? Uh, but God wants them to suffer. Oh, yes, apparently so. Suffering is holy. Yes. That's why um, they, she, she wouldn't give them painkillers. No, she wouldn't give them anything. Yeah. I mean, she basically lined them up and let them suffer together. Who could scream the loudest? Yeah. Yeah, you know, nasty I mean, piece of work. I'm not being funny. Hitler could have found a place for her. Oh, God, yeah, easily. <laughs> she would have slipped into his cabinet quite nicely. Oh, yes. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. And I know we've gone a little bit off topic. We were talking about Egyptian mummies and we managed to have a rant about a lot of stuff. But uh, it was about Egyptian mummies and how we used to eat them and how many people probably still do. Because even though today no serious archaeologist would unwrap a mummy and no charlatan would suggest eating. But the lure of the mummy remains strong. They're still for sale, still exploited and they're still a commodity. And someone somewhere is still unwrapping them and someone somewhere is still eating them. Just stop it, will you, Musk? <laughs> but they come in convenient tablet form now. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope you all have a strange week. If anyone does offer you a line of mummy, just say no. In the meantime, check out our website webpage at strangestuffpodcast.com where you can find a link to our socials, everything except Twitter, which we're now boycotting because it's shit. Become a patron and you can hear all the other stuff me and Andy talk about. Yes. And hopefully Mark will be back with us soon and we wish him all the best once more. And we'll see you soon.